Everybody, this is Chris. Welcome to episode 346 of X Lapsed, where I come to you today for the first time in a long time, completely COVID-free, or at least uh, uh, on paper, I'm COVID-free. <laughs> the, the test came back negative, so uh, we're we're good to go, and hopefully, that means that uh, the rest of this ugh will be worked out pretty soon, and uh, before long, I'll be without this super sexy rasp that I've been speaking with for the past little while now. Uh, today, we're kicking off another new Destiny of X book, and one that I was looking forward to quite a bit. So as we do have a decent amount to talk about, let's hop right in. We're talking about X-Men Red, Volume 2, Number 1. It's at a June 2022 cover date. Story's called The Broken Land, written by Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli and colors by Federico Blee. Letters VCs Ariana Marr, designs by Muller and Bowen. Edits Amaro White Sabolski, cover price $5. This one went on sale April 11th of 2022. Now, before we get into it, a little bit of a prefacing here in that uh, this was one of the issues I was warned about um, back in, uh, I suppose it was April of this year. Uh, some friends had reached out to me to say, hey, um, I hope this book gets to you in one piece because. This was uh, during the time where Marvel was putting out like a week or two's worth of books on, I, I guess like even calling it toilet paper would be too kind. <laughs> this is like really, really, really poor paper quality here. Uh, they blamed it on supply chain stuff. They blamed it on, they blamed it on everybody. You know, everybody except Marvel themselves, they blamed it on them. And uh, yes, it's worth noting that the paper stock for this issue is... Um, well, it's not great. It really isn't. Uh, it came to me in one piece, and it's in, you know, really good condition because it was packaged quite well before it was shipped. But, uh, boy, I could see how, like, a, like if a shop got, like, a stack of these things, how they might look a little bit warped. They might be a little bit, a little bit ucky, you know? But, uh, yeah, this is uh, one of those toilet paper issues, and we'll be talking a little bit more about uh, Marvel's shipping woes and... Uh, Damaged books at the at the end of the episode, so uh, I guess look forward to that. But for now, we've got a book to discuss. So let's take a look at the cover here, where we see Storm, Sunspot, and Magneto stood and or hovering in the foreground, while we see Abigail Brand's face kind of looming in the background. Now, of course, X-Men Red is a follow-up to Sword, Volume 2, which ended with the revelation that Abigail Brand is a double agent who is working for Orcus. Now, the title here, the last time we had an X-Men Red was back in 2018-2019 when we had uh, X-Men Blue and X-Men Gold and we would have the X-Men Black one-shot so red was just uh, another color they could use and Jean Grey was a big part of that. She has red hair, you know, so let's call it X-Men Red. Um, now the title here 
it's pretty clearly a reference to uh, maybe the meat and potatoes of this series having to do with uh, Marzarocco and the Marzarockan status quo. So we open. We open the book here, and we're back before the Hellfire Gala. I mean, naturally, we can't have a single issue of an X-Men comic go by without reminding us that there was, in fact, a gala. And here we see Storm in the Circle Perilous on, uh, you know, Araco, and she is doing battle with Nameless, the shape-shifting queen of Araco. And we did see this scene kind of play out in bits and pieces during Sword Volume 2, Number 8, and we discussed that one way back last October during Episode 267 of this program. Now, Nameless has taken the form of Storm from back, you know, during her earliest days with the X-Men from... Right around or just after Giant Size. Now, Nameless claims that this is when Storm was in her prime. She wasn't tainted by the world, and she was not seduced by power. Nameless taunts Storm's lack of ability, suggesting that she probably doesn't have what it takes to rule Araco. Nameless then... Uh, kills itself with a lightning bolt, uh, giving Storm the seat of power anyway. From here, we jump to three days ago. The Great Ring are assembled, and they're debating whether or not to return to Amenth to do battle with their ancient enemies. So it's basically a choice between war and peace. Iska the Unbeaten asks for Storm's decision, to which Aurora says it's not all up to her. They're going to discuss this as a unit, as a council. They're going to vote on it. Now this takes us to our double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our characters include Storm, Magneto, Sunspot, Thunderbird, Brand, Cable, and Vulcan. From here, we return to comics, where we see on a sparsely populated continent on Marzarocco the arrival of Magneto. Now, he's greeted by a man carrying a harpoon and some freshly caught Martian fish. Now, we're going to learn that he goes by the name Fisher King, just we won't find that out just yet. Magneto introduces himself. Well, he first says his name is Magneto, but then he corrects himself and starts, uh, he says he's going by Max, which is, of course, his retconned real name. He asks if it's cool if he sets up shop here. The Fisher King says it's no problem, so long as he's not trying to, like, claim any of the land for himself and, you know, himself alone. Basically, what he's saying is it's cool to live here, but don't go thinking you own the place. Now, this Fisher King is a very different shade of Iraqi than we've come to know over the past year and change. He doesn't appear to be overly violent nor bloodthirsty. He's basically just a dude living his life. He tells Magneto that uh, he has a place in this broken land, and this, you know, broken land gimmick is something we're going to hear more about throughout the issue, and probably throughout the series. Magneto discusses his recent Krakoan failure with the Fisher King, how he attempted to build something, but, uh, well, it just didn't take. Now, as he pontificates, as, you know, Magneto is wont to do, he's also wielding his great magnetic powers, ultimately creating this great big castle, which he calls the Autumn Palace. And I think Magneto is part of the Autumn Quarter of the Quiet Council, so maybe that stands to reason. And now for a peek behind the curtain here, I've tried saying scene shift about 700 times here trying to get to this next part of the, uh, next part of the book here, but I can't say scene shift. Now I'm saying it fine, but every time I tried saying it before, I couldn't. So I guess uh, uh, take 500 here. Our scene shifts to the Red Lagoon at the Port Prometheus spaceport. Now, Port... Port well, there I can't say port now. Port Prometheus is that hub point. It's kind of like an interstellar airport of Araka. It's a diplomatic zone 
where all shades of ambassador and dignitary can visit, and, you know, they'll be, you know, perfectly fine and safe there. We learn here that Bobby DaCosta owns this Red Lagoon bar, and he's chatting up a spiky alien called Kobak Neverheld, and they share their tales of woe over love's lost and all that. Uh, Kobak's love, Tarlo, was killed by the vile, and we can assume that maybe that was Tarn the Uncaring's locust vile? Maybe? Uh, this isn't the first time we're seeing Kobak, as far as I can remember here. I think Kobak did challenge Storm, in, or or threatened to challenge Storm in the Circle Perilous, but uh, I don't think anything came of it. So Bobby talks about uh, Juliana Sandoval. They're talking about lost loves and all that. Now, Juliana first appeared and also died way back in Marvel graphic novel number four, the first appearance of the New Mutants. Kobak tells Bobby that, hey, you've got some trauma, so you have a place in the broken land. And I'm assuming having suffered past trauma makes someone, I don't know, an honorary Iraqi? Maybe? I don't know. Anyway, this chat is interrupted by the arrival of Vulcan, and boy, is he unhinged. Now, he's got it in his head that he is still the Emperor of the Shi'ar, and um, he's not entirely off base with this, uh, with this thought. We'll, we'll get into that here. Uh, you see, he was, at one time, the Emperor of the Shi'ar. He assumed the role back in Uncanny X-Men number 485, which had a June 2007 cover date. Then, he was assumed to have been killed in an explosion during War of Kings number 6. That was October 2009 cover date. But, as we learned back during his drunken night during the Empire cash-in, that was X-Men volume 5 number 10, or 9 maybe, uh, he never actually died. In fact, during the explosion, he was rescued by some aliens, and we discussed this ditty way back in episode 88 of this program. But the fact that he didn't die wasn't known by anybody, so perception being reality, Gladiator would replace him during War of Kings colon Who Will Rule number one, November 2009 cover date. So from everything we know now, and what Vulcan knows, he knows he didn't die, and as such, he should have never been replaced as Emperor. So therefore, in his head, he still is Emperor. Only, currently, there's a little bird girl, you know, sitting on the Shi'ar throne. A gladiator, of course, would hand over control to Xandra, this is a Professor X and Lalandra's daughter, back in New Mutants number 2, which we discussed way, way, way back in episode 22 of X-Lapsed. Now, Vulcan is pretty much unloading on some poor Shi'ar fella, threatening him harm unless he acknowledges his royalty or whatever. Uh, Vulcan refers to Xandra as Xandra Xavier before threatening to kill her. And he states, or at least he suggests, that maybe every Summers has to kill their Xavier. And indeed, his brother Scott did once kill Charles back in Avengers vs. X-Men number 11, November 2012 cover date, while he was under the control of the Dark Phoenix. Anyway, as Vulcan rages and literally flames frothily at the mouth, Bobby interjects to try to get him to maybe settle his tea kettle a little bit. And so, they fight. Uh, they do so until Thunderbird enters the scene, and he, uh, he walks in and he punches Vulcan square in the face. He also tells Vulcan to uh, tell his brother Scott to go F himself, because, I don't know, I, I, Thunderbird knew Scott for like 20 minutes, I, I guess that was enough to make a, uh, a bad impression. A T-Bird then picks up a piece of the scenery and proceeds to pummel Poor Vulcan with it. Now this actually garners jeers from the crowd, as it's seen as dishonorable, 
because this fight, as it started, was a one-on-one between Gabe and Bobby. They see Thunderbird is coming in and sullying the battlefield, I suppose. Just then, Cable and Abigail Brand enter the scene. Cable shuts down his uncle Gabe by pinching his carotid, and he discusses how Vulcan's kind of been off his nut. He calls back to that editorial hiccup at Summerhouse, wherein Jonathan Hickman forgot that Petra and Sway couldn't possibly have been there, because this is before Wanda's waiting room, and they died before the Shi'ar Cerebro dealy, you know. We've talked about this before. It's one of the, you know, major boners of the Hickman era. And, of course, we could just write that off as being, you know, a hallucination or whatever. But, I mean, they were in that scene, yes. But also, one of them, I can't remember which one, showed up as a New Mutants trainee at the Wild Hunt later on. Whoops. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure how they're going to explain this away, but uh, it does at least seem like, like they're interested in doing something with it. Oh, and also we find out here that Vulcan is apparently no longer welcome at the Summer House. They don't really explain why. Hopefully that'll all come into focus soon enough. So Brand says that they're going to put Vulcan to work at Sword Station 2. Now, Bobby and T-Bird don't take too kindly to this, seeing as though he is completely insane. He's lost his mind, and uh, perhaps rather than being rewarded with a swanky, you know, high-profile gig, he should be getting punished instead. Anyway, Thunderbird and Cable then get in each other's faces, with Nate getting the better of the verbal exchange. And he pretty much mocks John for his hot-headedness and lack of foresight. He jokes about John having had a plane to catch back in the long ago, which is a reference to his his death back in, was it X-Men 97, 98, 96? Somewhere around then, right after Giant Size. Brand then bans Proudstar from Morocco, which, that's something I didn't realize was within her purview, but in fairness, I didn't know that it wasn't either. John takes his leave, but not before warning Bobby that this whole stinking place is rotting from the head down, and, uh... Well, Bobby agrees. From here, we hop into an info page, and uh, this is the Great Ring's vote regarding war versus peace, you know, returning to Amenth, fighting their ancient evil enemy, yada, yada, yada. Which, I could have sworn we'd already seen sometime earlier. Maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, let's go down the line. Iska the Unbeaten abstains. Because her mutant weapon is that that she always wins, right? So basically, whichever way she votes, so goes the vote. And I mean, man, deja vu, I swear we've already read this. Um, now, Idol votes for war. Tarn also votes for war. Laktuka votes for peace. Storm votes for peace. Sobunar votes for peace. Aura Serrata votes for war in absentia. Hmm. Xylo votes for war. Lotus Logos votes for peace. So the vote is tied. And as Storm has been given a second vote as the regent, she votes again for peace. So peace takes it. And there is a note here on the info page that these opinions, these votes that are cast, are not recorded. So they're not part of the Iraqi official record, if there even is one in the first place. I don't know if that's significant, uh, but I will say that it is kind of interesting. Back to comics, and uh, we got Storm and Iska having a chat. And um, I'm not sure if it's the kind of chat we'd call contentious. Uh, Maybe passive-aggressive is more appropriate a descriptor. Uh, during this chat, we are reminded that uh, Red Root is still in friggin' Otherworld, which... Uh, come on. Anyway, Iska takes her leave, and Storm flashes back to her battle with Nameless again. 
Now, this flashback is interrupted by the arrival of Abigail Brand, who asks Storm for a walk and talk. Brand suggests to Storm that Arako needs a team of X-Men as a sort of kind of controlling influence. And Storm is not immediately keen to this idea, nor should she be, considering how Brand is kind of playing all sides right now. It's worth noting that Brand refers to Storm as the Queen, and also states that Krakoa, quote, colonized Mars during the gala. And these are two things that Storm is quite resistant to. She doesn't like being called the Queen for some reason. It seems like they're kind of trying to force that a little bit, but also... She doesn't, uh, she doesn't consider Mars having been colonized, which I guess that's an arguable point. I mean, who does Mars belong to, right? Um, does it even belong to the Earth at all? Who knows? Maybe we'll find out more of that discussion uh, later on. Anyway, Brand breaks off, and we follow Storm into her throne room, where she destroys her throne in a fit of rage and lightning. Uh, perhaps feeling as though Nameless may have had something of a point about her being seduced by the throne and by power. I don't know. In any case, this is Storm kind of turning a page here, and, uh, well, well, we'll get into that in a little bit. We next return to the Autumn Palace, where Magneto and the Fisher King talk interior design for a bit. And we learn here that the Fisher King is not a mutant. He was simply born in the Iraqi prisons. He claims not to be human either, however, as humans are from Earth. It's an interesting, interesting um, point of view. Anyway, he says that he was tortured by the vile, perhaps the locust vile. And also, we learn that his daughter turned on him and sided with the baddies. I don't know if his daughter will come back around again. Uh, we do currently have a member of the Great Ring who kind of changes affiliation every so often, so I wonder if, I wonder if that's a shoe waiting to drop. I really don't know. Anyway, Sunspot shows up at the door with a proposition for Magneto. Now you see from his little uh, tiff with Vulcan at the, uh, the Red Lagoon there, he can kind of tell that Brand is up to something. And he suggests that Mars Arako might be in need of some defending. And he suggests that they uh, maybe put together a team of X-Men. Now Bobby is interrupted by the arrival of Storm, who agrees that this whole broken land needs defending, but says uh, that defense should not come from the X-Men. Because, you know, after all, Abigail Brand will put together her own team of those. Instead, they're going to become... Oh, boy, uh, the Brotherhood. Hmm. That's worth noting here that Storm's done up her hair to evoke the look of her old mohawk, and she's wearing the skin-tight leather look that she wore back then as well, just a modernized version. And, oh, boy, I mean... Hmm. Uh, let's let's talk about this here. Uh, my <laughs> the first thing I thought here is, wow, we've got too many of these damn books. That said, I really enjoyed this issue, uh, but I mean, it's just such a reminder that this line is bloated and just like ready to pop. Um, the current year X experience, at least for me, would be so much more satisfying if there weren't so many damn titles. And it's weird, I mean, so much of what we're getting in these books feels both like it's overlapping on top of each other, and also ex it exists alone in its own, like, pocket universe. It really stinks of there being way too many cooks, and nobody, despite having a small army of editors, being interested in the slightest in guiding the ship. It's like, geez, do we need a head of X? 
if that's the case, you win, universe. I mean, I can't even put up a fight. And I mean, I can't stress enough that this is a high-quality book, and I enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to more of it. But it just, I don't know why, what it is about reading this issue that makes me think that we've got too damn many of these books. And there are more on the way. It's uh, trying to reconcile things like, I mean, we have this Marauders book. We got a, we got another Excalibur. There are too many damn books. Um, now let's, let's get past that and we'll talk about the issue itself. I'm glad that we're actually putting effort into fleshing out Marzarocco and the Marzaraki. Because that's been... Kind of a weird blind spot up until now It's uh, you know, it's the old Hickman special Where he introduces some interesting looking characters With sort of kind of cool names But does absolutely nothing with them And gives us absolutely no reason to care about them It's kind of just like the antler-headed alien in the Avengers book It's like, hey, he kind of looks cool And he's got a cool name, I can't remember it right now But it's like, care about him And we're all sitting there like, why? <laughs> he's just a... He's just a, you know, anatomically incorrect, smooth-skinned, um, antler-headed alien. Why do we care about this guy? Give us a reason to. Anyway, I'm happy that these characters are finally getting fleshed out a little bit and we're getting some personalities. They're actually becoming characters instead of just, you know, semi-cool-looking designs. Um, let's talk about Vulcan for a bit. Now, Vulcan's story, which, I mean, we've talked about it before, this is all, you know, in part born out of an editorial or head of X error a couple of years ago. It's a pretty interesting take here. Uh, he's being presented um, in a very interesting way. And as emotionally fragile as he is, I can totally see him being exploited by Brand as part of her new, you know, Mars-flavored X-Men defense team, right? Uh, the fight between he and Sunspot and then later Thunderbird was cool to see. And like I said, he is fragile here. He is off his nut, and Ewing presented that well. And the best part about it is that, I mean, there's foundation in his point of view and argument. You know, he never died, so why was he replaced? And if he was replaced in error, why don't they just correct that error? He was installed as the emperor of the Shi'ar Empire, and... If he never actually died or abdicated the throne, there's no reason why he shouldn't be back on it. So I think that's a very interesting thing to play with. And I also see that as being the uh, weak link in his uh, mental and emotional armor that Abigail Brand will be able to exploit here. I could see her making him the leader of her team of X-Men. I could see that, and I think that is a very, very cool thing to do. Um, we also learn here that Gabe's been tossed out of Summer House. We don't know why, but I'm definitely interested in hearing more about that, seeing if he did have a run-in with Cyclops, if he did have a run-in with Wolverine. I mean, I, I mean the Summer House, I don't... Did, did, I'm, I'm kind of reading The Reckoning War over in Fantastic Four. I thought the moon was destroyed. Maybe it was an illusion. I don't know, but um, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll worry about that another time. Uh, Cable being presented as the cooler head during the bar fight was pretty cool. I enjoyed uh, seeing he and Proudstar getting into it verbally. You got John there. He accuses Cable of turning his little brother James into a, you know, quote, good soldier. And how he's never going to kneel to him and all that kind of stuff. And Cable doesn't miss a beat. He throws it in John's face that, uh, well, you know, James worked under him. And guess what? James hasn't died yet. Which <laughs> John did. 
on his second ever mission, jumping onto that plane, right? So Cable just being this, you know, cool head here, he's still, you know, siding or physically standing next to Abigail Brand, but we don't really know, well, we don't know what he knows yet. We don't know where he's going to wind up. I think he's going to be a very interesting character to follow as this uh, as this series matures. Um, let's go to the end of the issue here. Storm choosing the Brotherhood name. Not gonna lie, I actually vocally groaned <laughs> when I saw it. Uh, I mean, we currently have a team of Marauders running around. This kind of feels, you know, been there, done that. You know, uh, we had the oomph of the scene for the Marauders where, like, Kitty turns around and says, Hey, we're the Marauders. And, uh, like, we all were like, ooh, even though that's the title of the series and we knew it was coming. Here, I think this was supposed to be, like, a big wow moment uh, that could be compared to that. But, I don't know. To me, it just feels like another thing they're throwing at the wall in hopes that it'll stick. Hopefully I'm wrong. And again, I mean, that's not to say I'm not looking forward to more of this, because I am. I'm really... I I enjoyed this issue quite a bit. This has been a a highlight of the Destiny of X era so far. And, I mean, there have been a lot of highlights. Only only one or two lowlights to this point. But it just didn't have the kind of oomph that I think it was supposed to have. Let's close out by talking a little bit about the Fisher King. Um, I find him to be a very neat addition to the cast. A non-mutant Iraqi seems like a very fun concept to explore. And I mean, <laughs> physically, he, he reminds me a little bit of uh, Wolverine's pal Jeff Bannister, which uh, I like Jeff Bannister. I think he's a pretty cool character. But uh, here, this Fisher King, we know that he's not a mutant. He doesn't identify as a human either because he's not from Earth. We know he has a daughter who turned on him. And I really, I don't think that that was a throwaway line. You know, I, I'm leaning toward, I mean, we don't know much about Iska the Unbeaten, but we do know that she's jumped sides back and forth. I, part of me is wondering if the Fisher King is going to be revealed as Iska's father. Don't know. You know, it could be. We'll find out, hopefully, somewhere down the line here. But I, in any event, Iska or not, I feel like we're going to meet this daughter, or at least we're going to learn more about who she is or was. Now, the Fisher, Fisher King name or concept comes from Arthurian legend. And uh, I believe Magneto says, he, I think he has kind of a throwaway line about how he wants to tell uh, Betsy Britton about, about the Fisher King here. And this is why he said that. Uh, the Fisher King gimmick from the Arthurian legend is that he was a, um, he, I think he was either like a fallen king or just a, just a, a guy who was, uh, he was wounded in the legs or the groin area, and he was unable to stand. The only thing he is able to do is, uh, well, sit or lay in a small boat and fish. And he would wait for a nobleman who would come heal him by asking a question. And as with, you know, the old sword in the stone gimmick where, you know, people would come around from miles or and try to pull this sword out of a stone, nobles would go to this Fisher King and try to heal him with a question. And um, uh, depending on the uh, depending on the Arthurian tale, it was a different. I think like three or four um, nobles were credited with healing um, the Fisher King here. I don't know that this will come back around. I'm guessing that the Fisher King name was not chosen by accident. I'm just not sure where they might be headed with it. 
The only thing I hope is that it doesn't get us entangled with the actual Arthurian spoo going on in the X line, huh? Which, uh, hey, speaking of which, um, Knights of X number one, next episode. But, thankfully, that's a discussion for another day. I think that's about all I got to say about X-Men Red here. And I do apologize for, you know, breaking into rants about how bloated I find the line here. This really probably wasn't the time or place for that, since this book... This book feels like it has a reason to exist. You know, this book feels like it has, um, you know, two sturdy legs to stand on and has a story that's worth telling. So it really wasn't the time or place, but for some reason, this issue just uh, sent me down that uh, <laughs> sent me down that winding trail here. Of course, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the issue as well, and also uh, whether or not you think this uh, line is a little bit bloated. Financially, narratively, uh, is this... Uh, are we trying to do too much with this line? Are there too many things happening? Is there not enough direction? I want to hear your thoughts on that. And, um, of course, speaking of your thoughts, let's pop into the mailbag here. We have a brief and uh, strange mailbag today. We're going to start with a letter from Evan talking about X-Deaths of Wolverine number 5. Now, Evan says... I would like to think that the stuff with Mora would have hit me differently if I hadn't known a lot of what was coming. But like you said, it all happened so fast. And of course, uh, this is a reference to the fact that Mora, like, she she died on panel, but it was almost like it was off panel. It's like something happened when she was wearing this, like, yeah, this plant-like suit. And she was just laying there dead. <laughs> just, it was... Like like Evan says here, it, it was very, very fast. And we don't even get a moment to kind of let it sink in because X-Deaths ends with the revelation that Mora is post-human now and she's alive again. And we didn't even get... Not, not, not that we were going to like mourn her or anything, but it, it's almost like we skipped an entire status quo. You know, it feels like we were robbed of a period of time... For these books here where Mora is dead And Mora is off the table In every way possible Even if we're going to bring her back Because of course it's comics Of course we're going to bring her back But we don't even get that moment Of her not being around anymore Of course the, the X-Men may or may not know That she's back But uh, we know And I feel like that Kind of uh, takes some of the oomph Out of the deal Evan continues here more confusing to me than her heel turn is how Professor X and the others were so nonchalant about Mystique hunting her down. And that's true. That is true here. Um, when Mora was depowered at the end of Inferno, and, and I mean, we do find out during uh, Immortal X-Men number one, we had those sinister secrets, the first bunch of sinister secrets that we were given, which were... They were raided, right? These these secrets were raided as to who knew what. Like, we have, like, the world knows this, mutants know this, the Quiet Council knows this, and, the, like, the final one, or, like, the tightest knit one was, like, only the people involved knew of this one. And I believe that Mora's depowering in exile was only known to the people who were involved. So, people like Mystique, Destiny, Doug, Krakoa, Warlock, and I think Bay. I think Bay the Blood Moon was there as well. I think maybe Professor X... And I, I can't remember right now. It's been a while since I read X-Deaths number 5, so I don't know if Professor X and the Quiet Council knew 
And that's, again, not to say they didn't know, because I, I really don't remember. It's been such a long time, and uh, at this point, I can hardly remember what I had for breakfast 20 minutes ago. So maybe they knew, maybe they didn't. But um, if they did know, then, um, yeah, they probably shouldn't have been quite so nonchalant about it. Evan continues with, uh, I hadn't even thought about the dangling thread of the cancer until you brought it up. It feels like that really needs to be explained, even if it's just, hey, living in an island, a living island's tumor ain't good for your health. And, you know, the cancer thread there, it, you know, it feels, and I'm going to evoke one of the old Chris Chestnuts here and say it feels kind of like a Dagwood sandwich. You know, it's just an extra layer, an unnecessary extra layer, which I can't think of any re- All it did was confuse the issue, right? You know, I mentioned Jeff Bannister not too long ago today, and we know that his daughter had cancer that the Krakoan magic meds cured or put into remission, right? That was, if not said outright, it was heavily, heavily implied. Or maybe it was said outright and they walked it back. I don't know. But if that's something that can happen in our fantastical Marvel universe, then Mora, not, I mean, they didn't... She went to Jane Foster, right? She went to Jane Foster in the hospital there and was told that these meds don't cure what Mora has. Which feels like it only contradicts something that came before from a story that the same writer wrote. It, mm. <laughs> and, and also, like, if you're going to give her this disease and then just kill her and bring her back in a totally uh, unrelated way, uh, what was the point of it in the first place? Other than if maybe the goal there was to walk back what happened with Bannister's daughter, I I really don't know. It feels very, very sloppy. And I think I mentioned this I think I mentioned this last episode. Yes, it was during the X Force twenty seven episode where they brought Omega Red back where I posited or projected <laughs> the uh, idea that maybe Zlato, Zlato was supposed to be something uh, far smaller before Hickman decided he was leaving. Maybe this was only going to be an X-Force and um, Wolverine story that maybe only had the X-Lives half to it. Maybe it wouldn't have the Mora half in X-Deaths. Maybe this was just going to be Wolverine going through time on a merry jaunt trying to stop the next, you know, after Xavier, the Age of Apocalypse from happening. But when Hickman announced his departure, editorial's like, hey, we, we got to kill a few months here. Can we, can we make this bigger? I don't know if that's the case. It kind of feels like maybe it was, but I feel like a lot of the Mora stuff here was kind of, you know, chucked at the wall to see what would stick and just to see what would buy enough time to eat up five issues worth of story. I don't know if we're supposed to think much more of it. Maybe we'll find out more. Maybe we won't. Uh, maybe her new post-human form will still have some of this cancer. I really can't say. It just seems like... That's like I mentioned a little bit ago. There's like no direction here. There's no driving force to this line right now. It's just like, hey, tell stories. It doesn't matter if you're contradicting yourself or each other. It doesn't matter if you're writing over each other. It doesn't matter if you're ignoring continuity or making up new continuity. Just write. Put out content. Put out books. And the only people who are going to care are the ones we don't want reading these books anyway. So do what you're going to do. But I think that's all I got to say about that story for now. I want to thank you so much for writing in, Evan. Our next message comes from Unknown on Twitter. It's an odd one. I woke up this morning and I checked my phone as I tend to do. 
And I saw I had a couple of messages on Twitter. Uh, I can't remember who sent them, but uh, I saw that there were some really good questions in there. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go make a cup of coffee. I'm going to go sit at the computer and I'll answer them. And by the time I got to the computer, the questions were gone. <laughs> they were gone. So um, I don't know. I figure I'll answer them anyway from what I can remember uh, about them here. Hopefully, uh, hopefully they're listening and uh, hopefully I can uh, answer some of the questions here. Uh, I've got. I was able to remember three of the topics that were brought up. It was a, a chain of like two or three tweets, I believe, that I saw. Anyway, the first question was whether or not Beast died during um, the the Dawn of X, the you know, post Hoxpox era. And uh, yes, Beast has died uh, at least once. I believe only once because I think I complained about Beast's first death in sixty years being kind of wasted. Uh, the gimmick here was that um, Beast had suffered a stroke, and he and Sage had kind of a standing agreement where if either of them, as you know, high-ranking CIA you know agents here, where if either of them were or found themselves in like a compromised position mentally or physically, then the other one would kind of do the favor for them. They would kind of put them out so they could be brought back. And uh, Beast suffered a stroke, and we did get a scene, I believe, in X-Force, where Sage uh, broke his neck. She killed him to put him put him out and have him brought back in a non-compromise or non-compromisable state. Um, part of the question here, I believe, had to do with Dark Beast. And if it's a possibility that our Beast has been replaced with Dark Beast, I, I, I may not be remembering that completely accurately. I, I just scanned the question... While I was in bed, and I figured I would, you know, attend to it when I uh, when I got up, but um, I certainly see that as a possibility. I don't like that idea because it feels, well, it feels obvious, and it also feels way too easy a way to walk back a lot of uh, character progression for Hank McCoy. And I mean, I know a lot of people don't like the way Beast's been portrayed, and, and part of me doesn't like it either. But as a as a character arc. And I mean, I've said this before, and people are probably tired of hearing me talk about uh, my feelings on the post-Hoxpox mutant CIA beast and how I feel that he is kind of justified in being, you know, a sinister bastard <laughs> because uh, I, I, it's just something I feel quite strongly about here. I, I'm not a fan of pushing him so far to that end where it's going to be near impossible to... Uh, organically walk it back and definitely Dark Beast isn't out there I mean it could be revealed that hey you know the beast we thought we knew was actually this demented one from the Age of Apocalypse all along and it's an easy way to do it and uh, maybe it's the best way to do it but I mean at the risk of repeating myself for the millionth time which you know that's something I, I do quite often I like this arc for Beast you know, I like him being ruthless. I like him realizing that he has no ethical tether anymore. I like him realizing that um, he makes his own rules now. He's always been the guy tasked with whatever, right? Every big extinction-level event has been laid at his feet, and just he was expected to pick up the ball and run with it without any direction, without any guidance, without any help. He was just told, hey, hey, we've got a legacy virus. We've got a virus. We have the mutant plague. Fix it. And Beast was 
kind of tasked with fixing it. And of course, that was whenever the creative teams remembered that the legacy virus existed. And this, you know, this is a Scott Lobdell creation, and Scott Lobdell is kind of notorious for, um, how did he word it? I think he called it like the, the tangled clothesline approach to writing a story, where you have an idea, and you don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know that you you have a beginning of a story, but you don't have an ending of the story. And you hope that in writing the story, you come up with a satisfying ending. And uh, he's, uh, I mean, this isn't me passing commentary on the man and his method. This is something he said himself in, I believe it was Comics Creators on X-Men, the uh, Titan Books, um, the Titan Books thing from the UK that Tom DeFalco uh, edited and interviewed. But uh, Lobdell was talking about Onslaught And how he had this really cool idea for Onslaught But didn't know what Onslaught was going to be I think the Legacy Virus was probably something very similar to that Where it's like, hey, I've got this idea It's a, you know, something we can kind of have Analogous to things going on in the real world And we can address it And we can do what we have to do with it And But then he kind of forgot about it You know, it kind of just was there in the background And it was always something that Beast would have to deal with and of course, this was back in the day where Beast had to handle things ethically. You know, he couldn't, uh, the, you know, there were no lab rats he could test with the legacy virus. He had to kind of, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know what he could have done insofar as testing out cures, given, you know, what, what we know about, you know, things like informed consent and um, just regular medicinal and scientific uh, Experiments, experimentation. What what could he do? You know, having a few uh, psych degrees like I do, I know that I've had to go through seminars and I've had to go through classes to become certified in concepts like informed consent, which is to say, even before you ask someone a single question that you're going to use for your for your experiment or for your data, there has to be everything has to be laid out. You know, everything has to be laid out ethically. And I mean, it, and it totally makes sense in the real world, of course. But in the Marvel Universe, Beast has the mutant plague, mutant AIDS, put at his feet, and he's told to fix it. And, I mean, he's tethered by ethics. We can jump ahead to post-M-Day when we had the Endangered Species arc, where Beast is again tasked with, Hey, we, we're down to 198 mutants. You, fix this. You, Beast. <laughs> you fix it. And so we get stories of him trying to figure out a way to fix this. But again, I believe at this point he was bebopping back and forth between the X-Men and the Avengers. So, I mean, he was a very, you know, he was publicly a hero, right? He was known. And, of course, he had to act within a, you know, frame of ethics. Here, post-Krakoa, post-Hoxpox here, um, he's got no one to answer to anymore. Everything's top secret. He can do whatever he thinks he needs to do because, again, he's been tasked with... You're, you're the guy who does the stuff we're not allowed to do on the surface, you know? All the bad, nasty stuff is, is yours, Beast. You have to handle this. And you, you're not answerable to anybody, but you have all the responsibility of keeping this entire mutant nation safe. So we have Beast going to that a darker end of the spectrum here. And, I mean, I, I'm so sorry. I feel like I've been saying this so often lately and for quite a while now, but to to kind of take that away and say it was Dark Beast all along, 
that feels kind of and like I said, I mean, it, it, there there are, are benefits to that, and there are also things that I don't like about it. It's definitely a way to fix things. It's definitely a way to go back to the status quo in an organic way and walk a lot of things, a lot of questionable behaviors back. But at the same time, I feel like those questionable behaviors are somewhat justified. I don't know. I'll, I'll leave it at that. If anybody wants me to talk more about Beast, I, I could. I probably ought to start my my uh, post hoxpox Beast podcast at some point, right? Where I can just say that over and over and over again. Anyway, the third and final bit that I can remember from these tweets uh, has to do with uh, Quentin Quire's character arc, and a lot of the discussion on uh, X Force Twenty Seven had to do with um, the maturation of Quentin Quire and the discussion of whether or not it's. Uh, Maybe not even whether or not, but uh, just being brought back with um, all of your emotional baggage and trauma. And I believe the question here posed on Twitter was about um, the possibility that maybe Quentin was brought back without some of his trauma, unbeknownst to himself here. Maybe Beast may have had a say in removing some of the trauma to make him a more uh, advantageous asset to the X-Force Strike Force here, right? And um, I don't know that that happened with Quentin, but we do know that it actually has happened before in the pages of X-Force. If we go all the way back to, boy, issue five or six, I believe, way, way back, uh, we had the, the really, really strong scenes of Domino and Colossus, who um, they had struck up kind of a friendship slash romance during... I want to say Cable and X-Force back in one of the Marvel Nows. And uh, they talked about things like trauma, and they actually uh, broached the subject of suicide. And it was the first time we talked about suicide in the post-resurrection era, which was very eye-opening because it wasn't something I'd yet considered. It was before we got to the Crucible, I believe. It was like right before we got to the Crucible. So the concept of a mutant, um, you know, taking themselves off the board in hopes that they'll be brought back in a fixed or less traumatized uh, way, that really hadn't crossed my mind just yet. It probably should have, but it didn't. Um, but that was a very eye-opening conversation here, which, res- which ended with uh, Domino... Asking Peter to make sure if she did, if she were to die, that she was brought back with all of her trauma. And at this point, I mean, we opened the X Force volume with her being um, literally flayed by uh, Zeno, right? She was kept in a canister, and they were like literally flaying bits of her skin off to graft onto the uh, the Zeno Wetworks team, to, so they could get onto Krakoa. And uh, I mean, that's pretty traumatic, right? So she wanted to be brought back with all of her memories and with all of her trauma because that was what made her her. And then she does die and she's brought back and she's a a far shinier and happier Domino. So we're wondering, we're left to wonder like who took the trauma away? And maybe it's obvious who took the trauma away. I've heard suggestions that it was the council, or maybe it was the five, maybe it was Colossus himself, who thought maybe he knew better. And I mean, we do know the Colossus has been sort of kind of under the influence of the Chronicler. Maybe that has something to do with it. But um, I, I I love that idea. I love that concept and topic as a, as a discussion point because 
it does invite so many questions that, and they're the inconvenient questions that I don't think, uh, that I don't think the, the folks on the island are supposed to be thinking about, you know, um, or, or, or they're not supposed to be questioning them so much, but, um, like I said, I didn't get a really good look at these tweets. I didn't get a as thorough a look at them as I would have liked to. But um, hopefully, I hopefully I answered some of the questions you may have had. And I, I do invite you to write in again. And, and I definitely thank you for uh, for listening and checking out that episode. So thank you, whoever you were, <laughs> for uh, for engaging and for listening. And I absolutely hope that I hear from you again. But uh, that'll do it for our mailbag here. Um, now we're going to hop into a totally different mailbag. This is, uh, this is my personal email account here where over the past few days I've been waking up to a stack of cancellations from, uh, DCBS. You all know that I get my comics, you know, monthly from, uh, Discount Comic Book Services. And, um, you know, over the course of the past ten years or so, I've been a customer of theirs, and... I think in the first nine and a half years, I may have seen, I don't know, a half dozen cancellations, you know? Not very many. Books just don't get canceled very often. Sure, there are delays and stuff, but never something where, you know, it's going to be removed from an order and put, like, on a, in a different, <laughs> in a different um, issue of Marvel previews, right? And, boy, uh, there are a lot of books being canceled here. I just want to go through the list here as it pertains to what I had ordered from Marvel. It's worth noting here, DC, Image, Boom, IDW, no cancellations, just Marvel. Which, hmm, you know, the biggest comic company in the country, if not the world, one of the largest entertainment companies in the world, um, somehow they're the ones that can't get paper. I, <laughs> I don't know. Everybody else can get the paper. I don't know. Let's go through the books here. Uh, out of our cancellations here, we've got Exterminators number one, which is listed as being canceled by publisher. Uh, all the rest of them are listed as resolicit, except for Exterminators number two, which is listed as canceled or resolicit. So I don't know. Maybe we won't get an Exterminators one. We'll just get an Exterminators number two. I don't know. Uh, now these following books will allegedly be resolicited, and they include. Axe, Death to Mutants, number two. Of course, that's, you know, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals. Um, Immortal X-Men, number six. Marauders, number six. A New Fantastic Four, number four, which is not an X-book, but it is one that I'm, I've got on my order. Axe, Judgment Day, number four, will re-solicit. Re Amazing Spider-Man, nine and ten. Avengers, number... Well, that's not Avengers, number ten. I must have put the wrong... It must have been 60. Avengers, number 60. Uh, Fantastic Four 47, Legion of X5, X-Men 92, House of whatever the hell, number 5, and, oh boy, X-Men 92, the House of, I don't House of 92 or something like that, the the animated series take on the Hoxpox era, I opened up the first issue of that, and it made me hate everything on the planet, it, it totally... It totally misses the point of what kitsch is. <laughs> and, I mean, it's supposed to be a throwback, but it's a throwback to something that never existed. It's like this it's like this weird, like, Dunkaroos and ecto-cooler commercial that's, like, rad. It's like, no, 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 no. That's not what the X-Men were back in 1992. It wasn't all about gnarly, rad, and cool. It was just, like, a comic book. But 
it's awful. It's uh, I wish I wasn't a completionist. It's it's it makes me hate everything. Uh, we also have X Men Red number six, Genesis Velm, Captain Marvel number three, Gambit number three, X Men Legends number two, X Men Legends number three, uh, Gambit number four, X Men Legends number four, and oh boy, X Men Green number two. These are all books that are uh, pushed off the schedule or pushed back in the schedule here, and I don't get. Every Marvel comic, I probably don't get half the Marvel comics, so I can only imagine what the Marvel zombies are getting from uh, from DCBS right now. They they must get emails like every five minutes with a new uh, a new book being resolicited or canceled or or whatever the hell. I really don't know what this is all about. Um, it's odd that it's only happening to Marvel, and it's odd that the the. It's like an exercise in pushing the buck and making excuses uh, when comics fandom is a constantly shrinking, <laughs> uh, shrinking uh, genre and um, you know ecosphere. Right? It feels like there are fewer and fewer of us every day. And here's Marvel, the biggest company in the country, maybe in the world, not putting out books. And Reggie and I used to talk about. You know, what makes a comic fan? And we would talk about um, the science, the emotional science of collecting and how so many comic fans are uh, habitual in nature, right? It's We collect comics because we've always collected comics and it's harder to not collect comics than to go buy the books. You know, whether or not we're enjoying them, whether or not we need them, it, it's it's easier for us to buy them than not. And... Here we are. I mean, say you're a casual fan. Say you're a, you know, not a completionist, not a uh, psychopath like me who needs everything. And you go in one week and you're looking for your next issue of Amazing Spider-Man. And it's not there. Okay, okay, cool. Whatever. Maybe you go back the next week. Hey, is that Spider-Man issue out? No, no, it's not. It's not out yet. Okay, cool. Okay, I'll come back next week. You come back next week and you come back for a month. And that Amazing Spider-Man book never shows up. Then you realize, hey, you know what? I haven't read Spider-Man in a month and a half, and I really don't miss it. So maybe next week I won't go back to the store. It just seems like Marvel's going out of their way to make us not want to read these books anymore, just to not let us read the books anymore. I really don't know what the reasoning is, because everywhere I've checked, it's a different reason. And it's never Marvel's fault. Because if you dare say that it is, uh, well, they'll stop sending you free stuff. So um, you gotta you gotta make up excuses here. Since I buy all my own stuff, I don't have to worry about Marvel taking anything away from me. So I guess I'll say it. it it's not good. It really isn't good. And I think um, they really need to get back on the ball here. This needs to be fixed as quickly as possible. I'm not like a doom and gloom guy who will say like, ah, in two months, comics will be gone. But I mean... It, it feels like we're really increasing the speed at which we're digging the grave. So um, I don't know if there's a point to this. It's basically just me complaining that uh, like entire orders of mine are being canceled and resolicited. And uh, I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. And uh, I'd like to hear your experience as well. I'd like to hear your takes on this as well. I want to hear uh, what you think about um, you know the the near and far future of. Uh, of comics here, I feel so bad for the retailers. You know, um, there there are people out there who only read Marvel comics. So what happens when 
you know, like say 60 or 70% of your box holders at a, at a local shop don't have any books in the box. That's going to get harder and harder to keep the lights on. And I mean, we can be conspiratorial and think that, hey, maybe that's the point. But, um, well, well, we'll save the conspiracies for other people, I suppose. But I think that's about all I got to say here today. And, and as I said, I'd love to hear your thoughts, not only on things like the shipment delays, the poor paper quality, the uh, supply chain, yada yadas. Uh, also, I want to hear your thoughts on the entire X line. I'd like to hear your thoughts on X-Men Red, which was the book we discussed today a hundred years ago, and I really, really enjoyed it. But uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to reach out, I invite you to do so. You can find me several different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can send an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram at 90sxmen. Uh, you can check out the blog. It's uh, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Join us on Facebook. The group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's available anywhere. The internet aggregates noise. And well, this is the longest episode I've done in a while, and my voice is uh, just about gone. So I want to thank you all so much for bearing with me today and sticking around for uh, the long haul. It really does mean the world to me. And until next time, as always... I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. No more